Welcome to Hedge Fund Tips with Tom Hayes. I'm Tom Hayes, and this is your 227th video cast podcast for the week ending February 22nd, 2024. Uh, as always, we'll kick it off with some family updates, and then we'll get down to business. Lots to cover in the markets this week. Uh, this weekend, we were at Yale. Mimi and Annabelle were in a meet that's uh, my three girls, <laughs> Mimi, Annabelle, and Caitlin, of course. And um, so basically, as Caitlin wrote for me, it was a freaky Friday switch for Mimi and Annabelle. Mimi, our distance freestyler, swam epic backstroke, putting her in Connecticut top 16. And Annabelle, our backstroke phenom, swam distance freestyle and almost broke six minutes in the 500 free. So great job all around there. Someone asked me last week, they heard the dogs barking, uh, so they wanted to meet the dogs. That is Lucky, and that is Pepper. So uh, great dogs, and that's that. Those of you who are new, I know we have a lot of brand new people listening in this week, so welcome, welcome, welcome. Uh, so if you don't get to see, I usually like to give a behind-the-scenes look when I do some of these media appearances. This is the green room for the Charles Payne show I did earlier this week. Um, so it's pretty cool. And then this chart we're going to go into in just a minute. So first and foremost, want to thank Charles Payne, Nick Palazzo, and Kayla Aristivo for having me on Fox Business, the claim count, uh, Fox Business making money with Charles Payne this week. Uh, we're going to go ahead and listen in here as I talk about how we think about selling positions, how we think about hedging, and then some detail on two positions we've discussed, and we'll go into further granular detail. Great interview. Listen in. Market goes down. Now, the question is, what do you do with your portfolio in those periods? Right? According to the stock market almanac, in fact, what we ventured into right here, you see the purple line? This is where we're going right now. We're pulling back a little bit. Now, here's the good news. This is when we have all these sort of uh, typical election seasons. One thing is that the green line, when you have a sitting president, you usually go down and then we start to turn up and then we take off like a rocket ship. There's a lot of theories for that. A lot of money pours into the economy when the incumbent's trying to stay in office, those kind of things. I want to bring in now a Great Hill Capital Chairman, Thomas Hayes. And Thomas, you're expecting some near-term weakness right now. Yeah, that's right. And as you know, I've been coming on the show for a year and a half, bullish every single time. Right. So this is new for us. We actually put on a tactical short last week. We started on Tuesday. Uh, then the market uh, kind of cr crapped out after the CPI numbers. And we finished it on Thursday when the market recovered. So we have 1% of equity capital in near-term put spreads in case we get this 5 to 7%. Uh, is it to make money or is it just as an insurance policy? Dampen volatility. If, it, if we're right, we'll have extra capital to go long into year end. If we're wrong, it's 1% of equity capital. But the key is we don't have to sell out our positions that are not at full value uh, so that we don't create taxable events. All right. So, OK, I'm glad. Let's talk about that, because you actually wrote about the, why you hold into these dips, why Correct. you want to hold these positions. Right. Uh, you want and, and, and some of the things if you own a quality business and you stick with it. Right. Correct. Stocks go up and down. Yep. If you believe in a business, or you think it's a quality business. Don't be don't be so tethered to the share price on That's a day to day right. basis. That's right. Avoid a taxable event. Yeah. I've seen people do this and 
mess up. Like, in other words, they didn't want to pay, you know, the tax, so they held a great win, yeah. and they ended up losing on the win anyway. Like, it would have been better. How, at what point, what, what percentage gain is okay to say, okay, I'll pay Uncle Sam a piece of this? Yeah, so before we go into a, a company, we have an estimate of what's fair value, what's fully valued. So if they've not reached those events, we're, we're going to hold through that short-term volatility, and we may hedge uh, tactically uh, just to dampen volatility and create excess cal- capital. To but let's along. say you bought something at 30 bucks and it's 50 bucks now. Yeah. And it's starting to, it's starting to you know, eh, spin its wheels a little bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. W- w- I mean, and you've held it for six months okay, or a year. So here's what we did with Intel last year. We bought Intel at about $25 and 10 cents. It went straight up to 48. We took off two thirds of that because the legacy PC business and the data server business was fully valued. And we kept a third of those profits on just on. So uh, the taxes had nothing to do with it then. That's you, correct. It was all mostly fully based on the, on the fundamentals yeah. being fully, fully yeah. recognized in the share price. That's right. You see a strong year in rally. You've mentioned that also earnings estimates are going up. Let's talk specifics now, because I like when you bring these specific names. Yeah. All right. This is my theory, okay? Yeah. I'm, you, Baxter, okay, we've got this trend line. Yeah. We're, we're breaking through the trend line here. Yeah. Uh, now, if I was doing this, if I, were, if I was doing it, I would have something under the last low as my stop loss. Yeah. Yeah. Is that what you're doing? I know you like this fundamentally more than technically. Though, yeah, right? so I, I came on uh, December 12th with this name. Uh, it's up about uh, 10, 10% and change since then. The key thesis here is that the stock is trading at 12 times forward earnings. The reason it's trading is because growth has slowed down due to the kidney business. That's the slowest part of the business. They're spinning that out to shareholders right. uh, before the summer, which means we, we could get a multiple re-rating because what's left of the business is going to re-rate to its historic multiple, which is closer to 18 times. Still, though, Canada Goose is another yeah. n- name. And I mean, listen, it feels still like, okay, you like it fundamentally. You yeah. probably liked it fundamentally for a while. Uh, no, we came on- Just here recently. Actually, in January, it's up 12%. Is that when you liked it then? That's correct. Yeah. Breaking out, though, does that give you even more confidence, breaking this long-term trend line? There's no question. Technicals play a factor. But the key is they crushed uh, uh, earnings and they increased their guidance. China was up 62% year-on-year. They love these luxury jackets. What they're doing is they're moving their What happened then, because we got 30 seconds. What happened from here, though? Yeah, they had inventory problems, okay? Major inventory problems. They over-inventoried with COVID. Not dissimilar to Intel, by the way. Not dissimilar to Baxter. All these companies, not dissimilar to Generac. They all over-inventoried due due to COVID because they couldn't get product. Then they got too much product, and they had to work that through over six, seven quarters. These are now troughing, and you're seeing sales grow, margins grow, cash flow grow, and this business is going to recover nicely. Great stuff. Hey, thanks so much. Man, great seeing you. All right, coming up, my next guest says uh, is trying to reverse 100 years of history, uh, and he's uh, doing it by helping low-income families. Damon Harris is going to join us with his story from West Richmond, Virginia, next. All right. And we're back. And then I want to thank Aaron Bry for having me on Benzinga earlier this week. And I got a lot of tremendously positive feedback. Aaron asked a lot of questions. And the beauty of these free-form interviews is basically like, uh, like going acoustic on a guitar. You can really get into some granular detail that you can't do in a four or five or six-minute segment. Uh, and it gives people a lot of educational value. So we're going to tune in here. But all right, it is almost 11.15. I see my man Thomas Hayes hanging out backstage. So without further ado, 
Let's go ahead and give Thomas our very special Zinger Nation welcome. When we come back, we'll see uh, what Thomas thinks on the market right now. See maybe if he'd be buying the dip on some of these chip stocks and as well as some other trade ideas. All right, welcome, Thomas Hayes, back to Benzinga Live. Thanks again for hopping on with us today. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me, Aaron. Of course. So give me just your top of mind, like overall market outlook right now. I know you were bullish for a while when, you know, a lot of people weren't bullish on the market. Uh, do you still have that same mentality or do you, do you still have that positive of an outlook on the market right now? Yeah, well, Aaron, uh, yeah, it certainly was lonely. Uh, October 22 and uh, even October 23, everyone got bearish as well. And there were a lot of major names that have since either uh, flipped bullish or found new jobs. And when you see those kind of last holdout bears flip bullish, uh, it can be reason for pause in the short term. I think generally looking out, we're very, very constructive. But I think we're moving into a period, as a lot of people know, generally on a monthly basis, seasonally, uh, the end of February tends to be weak. There's no real catalyst. Earnings season's winding down. Earnings season was much better than expected. 2.9% uh, earnings growth versus 1% earnings growth expectations. So um, you have some seasonal weakness. And then in an election year, uh, this tends to be the period where you get weakness in February and in March. The only thing that worries me about being short-term cautious and long-term constructive is that quite a lot of people are looking for this 5 to 7% pullback uh, in the next couple of months uh, between now and, and April. Uh, we, uh, to position for that last week, we put on a hedge for the portfolio. We did some um, uh, short-term dated uh, put spreads on the S&P. And the reason we did that is, is a fewfold. First and foremost, we don't want to sell any positions in our in our portfolio. So we're we're long and strong because there isn't a position in our portfolio that we believe has reached full intrinsic value. We know where we want to get out of a company before we even get in, and none of them have hit those levels. There were a couple we could have considered selling calls against, but I don't like that. If it gets called away, you get a taxable event. So we wanted a situation where we could dampen volatility for clients. And if we're right, uh, that 1% of equity capital that we have uh, as a hedge, uh, the expected value is 5x. So that would become 5% equity capital. And that gives us a lot of money to add to, uh, to be long into the end of the year. Because on average in an election year, Aaron, since 1928, the S&P is up 11.28%. And we, we believe that's going to be the case this year. So very short term, February, March, April, maybe we get that uh, 3 to 8% pullback. And, and that's why we have the 1% the of equity capital uh, as a hedge short. Uh, but I think through the year, if you just sit tight and did nothing, uh, you're going to have a great year uh, up, you know, 9, 11, 12% on the indices and, and much more if you're doing a decent job uh, picking stocks. Got it. So in the short term, you may, you're a little cautious, and you and you think we might see this pullback. But overall, if you if you then then zoom out to the whole year, you're still pretty generally bullish. Yeah, un, unequivocally. Got it. And I do have. I mean, you were talking about how some of these bears uh, are now flipping over the bull side, and it's funny too how a lot of the perma bears like. 
the bear case keeps changing, right? For a while, oh my God, it's rates are at 5% and then rates are at 5% and the economy is fine. And then it's, oh my God, then something else. And then this geopolitical thing. And it's like, hold on, if you're going to keep coming up with a different story of why the market's going to come down, then you're kind of losing me over there versus people that have like stuck to, you know, this is why the market's going to be fine. And then, it, um, but I do have these numbers. Uh, and, and it's interesting. This is from the uh, AAII, the uh, American Association of Individual Investors, just the bullish versus bearish sentiment. And like you mentioned, I mean, October, November 2023, you can see right here, that was our one year bearish high on this on this rating. And it was over 50 percent. And that was just a couple a few months ago, November. I mean, November 2023 was what? Less than four months ago. Now it's almost completely flipped and you have 42 percent of people that are bullish and basically ha only half 26.8% of those people that were bearish. So you've seen, I mean, a lot of bears now leave that camp. Yeah, and I, I think the key thing here, Aaron, is you have to keep in mind, even though maybe we get this pullback, maybe we don't uh, in the next few weeks, we've had two years of sideways consolidation, namely 0% gains. So we've just broken out of a two-year consolidation. Very tough to get bearish uh, in a meaningful way here. Uh, the, the, the trend is now resumed. It's uptrend. I think if you do get a pullback, maybe you come back to where it broke out at 4650, 4700 range, but not, not a whole lot more than that. And, uh, and I'm happy to be wrong because if the market keeps pushing higher, yes, we've burned 1% equity capital, but the beta and convexity in our portfolio, uh, if the market's up another 4 or 5%, we're going to be up a lot more than that. So yes, we we lost a net one percent. But if we're right, we get an extra five percent of capital to to press into year end, which could add you know ten points of alpha for our clients, which is very important to us. So uh, I like the risk reward. Uh, I think what punishes the most people, we look at the pain trade a lot, would actually be neither. Um, in the sense that we just grind sideways and burn everyone's premium, burn all the new bulls premium, burn all the uh, perma bears premium and grind sideways for three months, consolidate some more uh, before we resume the uptrend. That's probably maximum pain for most participants right now. That's interesting because when you think about that maximum pain, pain scenario, you're typically not thinking about just sideways trading. I mean, maybe for uh, you know, like an options play into earnings where it's like, okay, if, if, if NVIDIA doesn't move much at all after its report, then obviously everyone buying calls and everyone buying puts are probably going to be down. But when I think about maximum pain scenario for the overall market, I'm rarely thinking about, uh, you know, it just grinding sideways. So that's, that's uh, definitely an interesting kind of outlook there that I'll have to think about. Uh, do you want to get into some of those individual names that you do like uh, long-term? And if you're yeah, you know, if you're if your short works out, where are you going to put this extra capital? Yeah, no, that ma that makes perfect sense. Um, so first, and, uh, the other thing to keep in mind, by the way, one of the, one of the key metrics we look at is the Bank of America Global Fund Manager Survey every month, which came out a few days ago. Uh, global managers are still one tenth of one standard deviation below their long term average in terms of uh, equity overweight. Uh, and uh, so, so there's more, as much new optimism that's coming to the market, there's still a lot of skepticism. The sentiment and the, and the outlook among institutional managers that manage about a trillion dollars in this survey uh, has risen a lot, but it's not at extreme. So I think there's more work to do on that front, which is kind of the overriding arch. Uh, we, we've got a few picks. 
as you know, we're much longer term than, than most. Uh, our average holding period is, you know, 12 to 48 months. When we buy a company, we buy it when it's out of favor, but cash flow positive, usually growing cash flow or temporarily impaired and is going to resume back to its long-term cycle. So we, we like to buy boring businesses. You know, I know there's a lot of excitement around uh, specific names. It's like a moth to a flame that people just can't not participate in. You know, a couple of years ago with Tesla, they either had to be perma bears saying that, you know, the cars fall apart or whatever, or perma bulls saying, you know, Musk is going to, uh, everyone's going to be driving an electric car in two, two months. Uh, uh, so we generally stay away from stocks like this. So, uh, you know, right now you got, so I assume no, I had news. Uh, yeah. I was going to say, I assume no SMCI then, or yeah, no SMCI, no NVIDIA. Uh, obviously NVIDIA is hitting on all cylinders, great company, great business, great leadership, all of that stuff. Uh, for us though, you know, paying 40 times sales, uh, in the short term, it can go to 80 times sales. We have no idea, but if you just look quantitatively at data, data over the last hundred years, uh, buying anything at 40 times sales uh, usually doesn't end well in the long term. In the short term, it doesn't mean you can't double or triple your money. But in the long term, uh, the odds are against you. And, and we just uh, tend to play with the odds. And uh, uh, but there are always exceptions. Right. So, you know, Bitcoin, uh, you know, we miss that. It's not what we do. We, we only buy cash generative assets. But uh, um, our framework wouldn't allow us to participate in certain things, not because they're right or wrong or good or bad, uh, just because we know what we're good at and we stay in our lane and we let people make money uh, tons of other different ways that are good for them. Got it. So, uh, I mean, I know uh, PayPal is one of the names that you said you like. I can go ahead and pull up a chart. Uh, the report a couple of weeks ago was not, I think, what a lot of bulls were looking for. But you're still, you know, want this? You still want to hold this company long term? Yeah, I noticed on your profile. Are you a golfer? I am. Yeah. Okay, so I'm a golfer as well. Uh, so there, there's a phrase in golf called sandbagger, yeah. which is you know the kind of guy that never records his low scores, and he says he's a 15, and he goes out there and miraculously shoots a 74 and takes all your money. Um, basically what you had with, uh, with Chris, the new Alex, Chris, the new CEO was he's basically just found the coffee machine. He's been in, he's been in the business for four months. He came from Intel, uh, uh into it rather while he was at into it, uh, he ran the small business division, which was responsible for 50% of the revenues. That stock was a 38 bagger over his tenure, uh, running ba basically 50% of the business. Wow. And he came in and he saw what we see, which is a business that's generating about $5 billion a year in free cash flow. They're now buying back about $5 billion a year in stock. And uh, he's a master of small businesses, which is what PayPal caters to. So he came in. He saw the opportunity and he said, he goes on with Faber on CNBC and says, I'm going to shock the world on January 26th. And he comes out with a pre-recorded 20 minute pitch on the five <laughs> or six things that he's going to do, which probably will shock the world 12 to 24 months out as he implements them. And uh, the margins start to reaccelerate and the cash flow goes from 5 billion a year to seven or eight or nine or $10 billion a year. And people say, wow, what happened so quickly? Um, but it wasn't going to shock him in a 20 minute sleepy video. That's for, that's for damn sure. So he realized, uh, the, the stock went up into that. It, it sold off after that. And then earnings, 
He said, let's try the opposite tact. Instead of promising the world, let's promise them nothing. And then we can exceed expectations every single quarter moving forward. And that's exactly what he did. You know, you have a company that beat revenues were up 9% year on year. Earnings uh, non-GAAP were up 19% year on year. Total payment volume was up 15%. You know, this is not a startup with total payment volume up 15% uh, year on year. This is a company that has 10% of global enterprise spend. So people think of PayPal, they think about the PayPal button, you know, on websites and everything else. The vast majority of their business is, is white label with Braintree. Uh, and so like when you take an Uber, people say, oh, I haven't used PayPal in six months. Well, when's the last time you took an Uber? You used, Brain, you used Braintree, which is owned by PayPal. You just didn't know it. Every time you take an Uber, PayPal and their owners get a cut. Interesting. I did not know that. Uh, okay. PayPal, booking, Ticketmaster. Have you ever gone to a concert in the last 12 months? That's Braintree. PayPal owns that. That's so um, 500 billion of 5 trillion global enterprise spend goes through Braintree, effectively, PayPal uh, owns that. And um, what analysts have been worried about was that when they made that acquisition, it brought the overall margins down, even though cash flow per share went up, revenues per share went up, earnings per share went out, it brought the gross margin down because you can't charge three points on uh, uh, Uber. They're not going to use you uh, that you can charge you know, three points on a small business guy with a website uh, that's more than willing to pay two and a half or three points because they have small volumes and they, and they understand that that's, you know, it's easier to set up and easier to use and all that stuff. So um, the one thing that Chris alluded to on the previous earnings call, not this earnings call, was a margin inflection in Braintree. The minute you start to see that, and we did see margin expansion this quarter, but people were overwhelmed by the soft sandbagger guidance, um, you're going to start to see a re-rating. So to give you an idea what that means, Aaron, uh, the stock is traded at 30 times earnings historically. That's its average earnings multiple, it's currently trading at 11 times, uh, 11 and a half times forward earnings estimates right now. Uh, and what you're going to see is that 510 winds up being six or six and a half and margins start to expand. And, and not only do you go up because earnings go up, but you're going to go up on a re-rating as, as margins go up and earnings go up. So from 11 to 15 to 20. And at some point we'll be back towards 30. People can't imagine that right now. But if you were at the average historical multiple today, you'd be a $150 stock. Never mind growth, never mind margin expansion, never mind all that stuff. So we think this can be an easy double wow. over the next uh, 12, 24, 36 months. Uh, and uh, the market will figure it out later. But, but the name of the game is he set the stage. Uh, he set expectations extremely low right now. Market didn't like that. And he's going to crush it every single quarter. And this is the guy who, with the 15 handicap, winds up shooting 74. And you say, how did that happen? It's because he was never a 15. He always saw, he just set expectations very low. Yeah. So he, so if he was taking you, if Chris was taking you out to golf and he, and he told you he wanted 10 strokes, you'd be a little skeptical on the first tee. Exactly. And that's basically what he had asked for. He said, give me 10 strokes. We're, we're going to have, a, you know, uh, 2024 is a transition year. I need 10 strokes. And then he's going to just knock it out of the park. So, I mean, it must get, I don't want to say lonely, but like when you're, cause you're, you're specifically targeting stocks that like PayPal are beaten down and out of favor. I mean, 
it's probably, you know, feels like you're, it's like when you were bullish in the overall market, when everyone else is bearish, everyone's probably like, oh, you, you want to touch this PayPal's, you know, awful. Look at the chart. It was, it was just a COVID play and all this. I mean, what, what do you say to people, I guess, that are kind of, I guess, either like perma bears on, on PayPal? Yeah, I love it. it. Look, if if you didn't have this this extreme of sentiment, uh, you couldn't have outperformance over time. So if if that sentiment didn't exist, I wouldn't be able to do what I do. Uh, all the companies I get in, I'm getting in. You know, I have two filters when I enter a company, and uh, we own PayPal in most, most across most accounts or in the mid fifties. Uh, but it's immaterial whether you buy it at 70 or you buy it at 50. It, like this thing is going to be double or triple. Um, the key is, is that the, the filters we look at is are number one is, is if this goes to zero, do they carry me out in a stretcher? And if the answer is yes, you either have it sized too large in your portfolio. Now we run a concentrated book, eight to 12 companies at any one point in time. So we do run concentration, but the expected return for the rest of our portfolio, if, if one company went to zero, we're still gonna be able to outperform over 36, 48 months because the rest will pick up the slack without outperformance. The second filter in the case of PayPal is, if we walked into the board of directors and offered to take the entire company private at the price that was quoted in the market today, would they call security to have us escorted out of the building because the offer was so ridiculous? And if the answer is yes, that hits our filter. So one, it can't take us out on a stretcher. And two, uh, it can't be at a price where the, where the board would actually entertain it. And right now, if you were to walk in and say you have financing from JP Morgan to take the entire company private, Anywhere near today's prices, they would have you escorted out of the building. One, they'd be insulted. Two, they would think you were a lunatic. Uh, and, and three, they, they wouldn't even meet with you. They would, they would say, get this schmuck out of the building. He has no idea what he's talking about. Because just on a cash flow multiple, I mean, they're going to generate another $5 billion of cash, buy in $5 billion of stock this year. Uh, there's nothing to think about. You know, if you, I mean, this thing in an LBO, the minimum you'd be able to even entertain would be a hundred bucks a share, minimum. Got it. Which would probably, which would put it at around a hundred billion dollar market cap. Um, it's at yeah. sixty, around sixty three right now. Uh, yeah. And and by the way, if the board accepted an offer like that, they should all be taken around back and shot. I mean, it would be <laughs> absolute theft from the shareholders. Yeah, it's like when. Um, Back in the day, someone tried to acquire Netflix and Reed Hastings said no. And I think it was Icon tried to come in and buy Netflix and they said yeah. no. And people were like, well, you have to. It's in the shareholder's best interest. And he's like, no, it's in the shareholder's best interest not to take this offer. So just because something would be a, a good you know, short term return to the shareholders doesn't mean that necessarily that's the best outcome for the company in the long run. 100%. Uh, um, what do you mind if I ask? Like, when did you enter a position in this? Yeah, so across accounts, uh, we have a lot in the mid fifties and some in the mid sixties. So okay. uh, blended basis, call it sixty dollars. I, I uh, probably a little less than sixty dollars, but in that neighborhood. Hey, so I could get in right now at a lower cost basis than you, and you've done all the research. I like that. That's uh, <laughs> it makes my job easy. Exactly. Um, all right, Thomas, do you have any other individual stocks you want to chat about while I got you for a couple more minutes? Yeah, we like Baxter. Uh, this is one that we entered in the in the mid thirties. 50, 53% down off pandemic lows. 
It's another uh, multiple uh, D rating that's going to be re-rated. It's um, historically traded at 18 times. It's trading at about 12 and a half times forward. The reason it's trading is because the kidney renal care business is the slowest growth part. They're going to spin that out to shareholders before the summer, which means RemainCo is going to have a much higher growth rate and get back to uh, its historic long-term average, call it 18 times, just on the re-rating. Plus, they are uh, re-accelerating cash flow, margins, earnings since COVID. All these companies, they overstocked during COVID because they couldn't get product. They're a medical device company. Uh, then they had to work through all that excess product over, you know, call it six quarters, whether it's Intel, whether it's Generac, whether it's Stanley Black & Decker, whether it's Baxter, it's all the same story. Uh, Canadian Goose, uh, Canadian Canada Goose, they're, they're all the over-inventoried work through. Now, revenues, margins, earnings, cash flow, all re-accelerating, but people are still stuck in recency bias looking in the rearview mirror, just like all the people were bearish at the bottom in October 2022 because they were stuck in recency bias looking at the prices go down in the previous five months and they missed the opportunity of lifetime. Now the market's up 40 some odd percent, uh, 45 percent off the lows, and now they're just starting to get interested. And uh, and we just have to suck those folks in. And that's when we get our five or seven percent pullback to, to shake out the weak sisters the new money, and then we can uh, resume the uptrend. Because as I said, after a two-year consolidation, you don't want to get too cute when that's breaking out. Maybe we retest the breakout level, but uh, uh, we're, we're, we're constructive uh, for the next you know, foreseeable future. Yeah. And of course, it'll be, you know, we've got more, you know, rate decisions and stuff like that coming in the next month or so. So it'll be interesting to see uh you know what's happening obviously nvidia's earnings tomorrow after the close that'll be a big one for the tech market because i mean if they for some if, if nvidia somehow some way puts out like bad numbers like they don't even meet the expectations let alone uh you know because for me not that you know i know we're not talking about nvidia that much but if they don't put out a quarter that like blows the numbers out of the water then i think you could still see a sell-off even on a beat um, yeah. and so then if they don't beat at all, if they miss and then the Nvidia's down 10% and then, you know, you, that trickles into Apple and Microsoft or whatever, we could get that pullback that people are looking for this week, but that's a big if, because I think, again, the market's expecting some, uh, some good things out of Nvidia. So, all right, those are, uh, you know, those are Tom's two picks for the day. You got PayPal, uh, ticker PYPL and Baxter ticker BAX. I'll throw those in the chat. If you guys want to go check them out. And again, you can look at all the fundamentals the chart what i'm doing right here on benzinga pro so uh thomas anything else uh, you want to leave us with today yeah i mean the only other company we've been uh, uh spending some time on is canada goose we built some position okay. at 11 and and change this is a luxury um uh, jacket retailer and basically what happened is they got a problem in the wholesale channel uh they've moved all of their production or the majority of it in-house same type of problem. They couldn't get product. They, uh, they've worked through excess inventory over the last six quarters. They've got a five-year plan to take it from 1.3 billion in revenues to 3 billion in revenues with 30% EBIT margin, which implies six to $7 a share earnings. They're running ahead of schedule. Uh, if you look at any of their stores, they're basically the Apple store of luxury jackets. Uh, and um, uh, this is a, this is a cash machine it's family owned the sun it's been around for 50 years most people don't know that the sun is running it owns 20 percent of the stock uh he is executing and i think it's going to surprise people now that everything's starting to inflect 
And by the way, everyone's so bearish on China. Asia Pacific was up 62% in the most recent quarter that they just reported a few weeks ago, uh, largely driven by China. The Asians love these jackets. And uh, North America and Europe uh, is going to start to improve. Their gross margin has expanded by 15 points over the last five years. Their revenues have tripled over the last five years. Stocks down on those um, uh, COVID-based inventory issues, which are now largely worked through. We think the stock can start to inflect. And with all these names for us, these are all 12 to 36 to 48 month plays. We're looking for doubles and multi-baggers. We're not looking to make 20% and get out. Um, that, um, that's, my type that's, of style. I like that. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. So, so that's how we think about it. So I think Canada goose is one with a little more risk and a little more reward to keep on, on your radar. Where, uh, you're out in New Jersey, right? I live in Connecticut and Connecticut. our, uh, business is based in New York city. Got it. Okay. So you're in the Northeast. I'm sure you see a lot up here in Detroit in the, in the winter, when it gets real cold, you see a yeah. bunch of, uh, Canada goose jackets around. I know a bunch of my buddies in Chicago, they got real tough winners there too. wear them and actually say that like, you know, they're, they're expensive, but you get what you pay for in the sense that, you know, you're not going to be cold in them. The one, I guess like fear I have with stuff like this is I do know a lot of luxury right now is dealing with a lot of like counterfeits and fakes. And a lot of people are, you know, maybe instead of buying a Chanel bag, they're buying what looks like a Chanel bag, but it's not. And there may be some of those for Canada goose out there, but overall, I mean, if the China, because China's the big market for Canada Goose. Right? China's the big market. And, and that's why they've ramped up their Apple stores of Jack. Like if you ever go into one of the Canada Goose stores. Yeah, I we have one. We of, have one here. And uh, it's it, gorgeous, right? Yeah. I mean, it certainly was, is, is on Fifth Avenue in New York City. And it's literally like an Apple store. And there's lines outside. Like you can't even get in uh, depending, you know, if you're on the weekend or whatever. Um, the Chinese don't like counterfeits. Right. <laughs> the irony is they know they come from you, China. Yeah. They come from China. But but so by by lowering the low margin wholesale channel and increasing the direct to consumer, which is 70% gross margin business, all the Chinese want to buy Canada goose jackets. They only want to buy them in the Canada goose store so they know right. that it's authentic uh, and has that lifetime warranty. And that's where they're getting the growth, where the greatest demand is and, and where people actually do not want to buy counterfeits. So by almost in a proxy, like by buying Canada Goose, where it's the stock's at now and it's, you know, beaten up and that's what you've been looking for is beating up names. You're kind of in a way like betting on the Chinese recovery. 100%. By the way, this is this is for the for the folks who are nervous about the China recovery. And we have a big position in China in Alibaba. Um, we like that story here. But le leaving that aside, for those of you who don't want to play directly because of all the different noise around China, this is an indirect play. So, you know, right. some people play it through Estee Lauder, some play it through uh, Nike, and some play it through Starbucks or different ways, uh, kind of quote unquote safe ways. This is a more direct leverage way to play it. Uh, for, for those who are uh, amenable to a little bit of volatility because it's a small cap name right. and it's going to take a little while to get the recovery uh, hitting on all cylinders. But uh, when it goes, it's going to go. And is it one of those things where if you're looking at Canada Goose, you can be like, okay, well, even if China's economy struggles, continues to struggle over the next year, like this thing is not going to go much lower than it is right now? Yeah, I mean, this it's mind boggling. If you laid out a chart of, the cash flow per share, revenues per share, earnings per share, gross margin expansion 
you know, you'd, you'd just say, well, how is this stock even down? And how it's down is, is basically the rear view mirror inventory issues, which the market is struggling with believing are over. But if you actually go through the earnings calls and through the progression of the process and how the owner, the son of the founder has been executing over the years, you would say there's something here and I should have a piece of this. And that's exactly the conclusion we came to after a lot of research. And we're patient. Uh, if it goes lower, we'll we'll use the opportunity to add more. And if it goes higher, we're, we're perfectly content with what we have. Got it. Well, last question, Tom, and I'll let you get on because I know you're busy. But uh, I mean, you know, we've, we've talked about now three stocks in very different sectors. Have you played like other retail names like Canada Goose before? Or how do you pick between, you know, PayPal, a fintech play, a healthcare play, and then a retail play? I mean, all kind of you're, you're basically looking across the board for anything that meets those filters. Yeah, I'm looking for high quality businesses where the, the price, the short term voting machine based on emotions has has is at an extreme and the long term weighing machine the fundamentals are actually either inflecting bottomed or starting to improve in most cases starting to improve uh and and when you look at the price relative to the positive fundamentals the dislocation is so large that's where you can get excess returns and excess alpha uh, playing the time arbitrage game so the name of the game with all of these is if you're not on leverage you can wait till the price, just as it's so emotionally despondent with a contracted multiple on the downside, at some point, 12, 24, 36 months, when that flips, it's going to be so euphoric and um, uh, optimistic and the multiple is going to be higher than it should be. And that's when we start to lay it off. When it, when it starts to price in Got more it. growth than we, we believe can happen. But you're taking advantage of these market inefficiencies on both sides. That's right. hundred percent. So, so that's where we benefit. And, and we have this kind of these spidey glasses where we can see under the surface by God forbid, uh, doing fundamental research and understanding the cash flows, understanding the balance sheet, income statement, et cetera. And with all these turnarounds, the number one analysis you're doing because they're priced so low and the margin of safety is so high is you're doing solvency risk. And if you can get comfort that they have enough free cash flow to service their debt, refinance their debt, strong enough balance sheet, then you're just playing the time game uh, until the market recognizes what you do and you give them enough runway to, to recover. But you know what, what's happened in COVID has created so many once in a generation opportunities on a company by company basis. And there are many of them still out there beyond the Magnificent Seven that a lot of money is going to be made by those with enough courage and experience to go a little bit against the grain in the short term. And as we look out, you know, the interesting thing after the first rate cut, you know, which groups outperform the first six months and no one's positioned for this right now. Uh, value outperforms growth and small caps outperform large caps. Interesting. So, I, I would have guessed the small caps, but not the uh, not that value outperformed growth. Yeah. Yeah. So so no one is positioned. Everyone's in the Magnificent Seven right now. It's a little bit crowded. Everyone's short China. And I think what you're going to see. Uh, oh, and by the way, international starts to outperform a domestic. So uh, as you know, the uh, weighting of China, although it's come down, is still material. So to get that outperformance in international, uh, you'll have to see China start to bid. And you're seeing the government start to panic. I think what they need is a good, you know, kind of protest with a bunch of unemployed 25 year olds 
calling for Xi to resign, and then he'll panic and finally do the big bazooka stimulus that everyone's been waiting for, and the thing right. will be off to the races and and uh, and never look back. Uh, certainly for two or three years until they hit the demographic cliff. But I, I think they've got one more parabolic move in China, and then it's then it's over. It's it's going to be more like Japan, but. Um, uh, I, I think I think you're going to see a lot of positive things. I mean, the, the the sentiment, the positioning, everything couldn't be more despondent than it is right now. And uh, and for most of the highest quality companies, they're still growing free cash flow. They're still growing revenues. Uh, and um, and when that recovery hits, they're they're going to hockey stick. Yeah, I mean, I've been buying Baba in my long term portfolio because I'm just looking at the valuation and I'm just like, all right, like, come on, this is like, you know, do I think like. China is still the United States' biggest trade partner. Yeah. Do I think we're still going to be doing business with China in 10 years. Yes. Okay. So do I think, uh, you know, Alibaba is going to be fine long term? I do. And so I've, it's been, it's just so cheap right now. But all right, Tom, we've, uh, we've had you on the line now for about half an hour. Thanks for hopping on. I know we've gone on a little longer than I, than I said I'd keep you. I know you're busy. Before, I mean, I got to ask, so I know I want it on the record. What's your handicap? So if we ever play, I know you can't try to sandbag me. Okay, I have. Uh, I started in earnest. We jo- joined the local club here uh, two years ago, so okay. I'm a fifth. I'm a fifteen two, okay. um, and I think that's going to come down though. So right. I'm, I'm going to be the antithesis of a sandbagger. I mean, my goal this year is to get down under a ten. We'll see if that's possible. Nice. Uh, you do any but, off season like simulator work? Yeah, like yeah. I got a simulator okay. in the house, and uh, oh, so well, I, all right, I, yeah, all right. It. You have no excuse to be above a 15 then with a simulator in the house. but Yeah, uh, I've been getting the putting going. I just got to get the, the short game in gear, which I think I can do over the next couple of months, and this should be a decent season. We'll see. Awesome. Well, we've got some beautiful courses up here in Michigan in the summer. If you ever find yourself in the area, then uh, then we'll take you out. But, Thomas, thank you again, uh, and, and hopefully we'll get to chat soon. I'll reach back out in a couple months, and maybe we can do an updated outlook on the stocks we talked about today. That would be great. Thanks so much, Aaron. Of course. All right, guys, that was and we're back. So that gives you a broad look of how I'm thinking about markets right now. I want to thank Ellen Chang for including me on her first article writing for Cheddar News. I uh, was grateful to be part of that, her article about Walmart. So congratulations on the new gig and thanks for including me. And also want to thank Chibuke Ogu for including me in his article on Reuters earlier this week. Now, as for the general markets, um, as you heard earlier, we put a 1% equity hedge on last week, Tuesday, then the market kind of corrected after the CPI. And as it recovered on Thursday, we finished it out. Um, and we'll see how that works. In effect, we hope it doesn't work because if the market's up another four or 5%, we'll probably be up a few more percent with that with beta. Uh, but it does run a long time in through April, and I was reading this note from uh, JP Morgan this morning, thanks to a friend of mine, and they're kind of looking at these measured move areas for the S&P around 5,100 or 5,200. I think we closed at 5,087 in that range today, and they're using some kind of Fibonacci levels. They're talking about momentum rolling over, leadership being thin, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, which may or may not be true, but what we wanted to do was maintain a full investment and hedge in case we do get that pullback. What's interesting about this, uh, they're saying, let's see here, uh, uh, 
stalled below 5099 range measured above uh, measured move objective their measured move objective was, was 5099 so that's very close to where we are now uh and at uh, we don't expect the rally to extend okay the next notable chart based resistant level comes in at the 5219 level uh, we don't expect the rally to extend that far, but the persistence of the rally, despite the two prior deceleration patterns and thinning of rally leadership in January, has admittedly lowered our confidence level. So these guys have been bearish for a long time. Um, now they might actually be right temporarily. But what they're looking for is similar to what we are. If, in fact, we do uh, get some seasonal weakness um, uh, in, in the next uh, two months, uh probably the path of least resistance would be back to where we broke out around 4650 on the S&P called you know 4600 4700 that would probably be the most of what we could be looking for which again you know if we get to 51 or 5200 you're looking in that 5 to 7% pullback range which would be right in the middle of it the fact that all of these not notable bears who have been bearish since October 2022 have either flipped or found new careers, flipped bullish or found new careers or new jobs, um, tell it, it is just from my experience the time when you should expect to pull back a lot of ultra enthusiasm after the NVIDIA earnings last night. And, um, you know, extreme can get more extreme, which is why we're fully invested. Uh, and it's easy in the type of companies that we invest in because it's easier to discern what is fully valued, what is fair valued. And the good news is we're not near there, so we don't have to be uh, taking off. I mean, the one, the two that I was considering selling calls against because we had such a run from October of 2022 when no one wanted tech were Amazon and Alphabet um maybe selling some calls but i i thought the more uh the, those are companies i want to own for a while and uh if not for a very long while and uh, probably the better way to dampen volatility was to put that one percent equity capital um and um and, and we're pleased that we did so uh, as as most of you know we run a concentrated book of you know, eight to 12 companies at any one point in time, that's usually 85, 90% of the portfolio. And then we have a bucket of 10 to 15% of uh, either long dated derivative overlays to get some excess return on our core positions or opportunistic shorts and hedges where uh, like you saw, we, we could take as much as 1% on uh, any one short idea, for instance, uh, or hedging idea. And by the way, I wanna thank everyone. Uh, we thanked everyone last week, the new people who came in uh, at the million dollar level that closed out and I want to thank a new uh, person coming in well above the minimum. Um, Frank, congratulations on getting started with us uh, and uh, look forward to many, many years together. Um, now they also look at the S&P pointing to this as a failure. We're going to look at that. You know, I could see a scenario where the S&P stalls out and maybe a small cap start to take the realm. The reason we've seen the opposite is after that, for the broadening to really happen, we have to get closer to the cut, okay? The, the, these, the 93% the 
that um, have performed, but not at the same level as the narrow leadership, uh, really do need that cut. And the CPI kind of put that in the back seat. I believe we have core PCE tomorrow, which is the key number that the Fed looks at. So that will be interesting if that comes in a little bit weaker or more in line with our longer term expectations and has a lower weight on the owner's equivalent rent slash shelter, uh, maybe this could resume and get the small caps to actually finally break out. And that would give the large caps a little bit of time to breathe, catch their breath, and, and these take the, the leadership uh, helm for some time. That would also cause a bid in bonds, uh, which is probably a, an interesting scenario to be on alert for in coming weeks. If you look at the flows from uh, Bank of America, thanks to my buddy over there, you know who you are. Um, you are seeing some money start to move into value ETFs relative to growth. You are seeing some money start to move into small and mid caps relative to large caps. And the, the recent inflows into small cap ETFs uh, have been pretty abrupt in the last week or so couple of weeks. So we should start to see the benefit of that in price action. Here's the S&P 500. Um, uh, so, you know, as you can see, uh, everyone wanted to get bearish right up, uh, at, at the new year. I, I mean, everyone was bearish down at the October lows. You guys remember who <laughs> hand holding through that. Uh, then in January, I said, don't get too cute here. Now we've pushed up so much and earnings are turning back up, but not to the extent of this push higher. So Maybe we do go all the way up to 5,200. It's going to be somewhere between 5,100, 5,200. But I think this has to probably cool in the next eight weeks, which will create some great opportunities for us. Uh, there are huge opportunities already uh, that are not re represented in the concentrated uh, uh, companies that are driving this bus. Um, but small caps, just to kind of put a point on what we're talking about here you know it's been in this range for quite some time and here it is okay so it's kind of just waiting to it, it like break out snuck back now it, you know basically looks like it's retesting this before going higher and i think that's what i'm looking for on a larger scale before this one can go, I think this is where the excess return we can start to see if maybe we get a weaker inflation or some data that points to they're gonna get going by, if not March, May, if not May, latest June, but they are moving in that direction. And the last week and a half, reason you've seen this re-rotation uh, back into the narrow leaders is because those inflation numbers came in hot and people said, wait, 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 I don't know about cuts, but I think that data is, uh, seasonally affected and we covered the um, non-adjusted data last week and our thought process behind that uh, and moving forward. So with as, as it relates to the S&P, uh, if we're going to see some weakness, which I think we will, um, then it would probably be back to this level, you know, 465 if you're looking at the spies, which again is is it will feel like a lot because some names will be down a lot more. Uh, it'll feel like less for clients because we have that hedge on, but um, you know, there'll be a lot of names down 15, 20% just on a five, you know, 
can go up to 5,200 first on a 5% move. So a lot of exciting things happen. I don't love this market timing nonsense, but it just from a lot of experience, I can see inflicting more pain on, on people who have been skeptical since October, 2022, um, that missed it here, then got bearish again here. Now they've missed it again and, and just really forced them to buy in at 5,200 or forced them to buy in Nvidia at 900 before they, you know, uh, hit the trap door. But, um, on the flip side, you don't want to be too cute because we're breaking out of a two year consolidation with 0% gains in the S&P 500 up until January, there had been zero gains. So the measured move on this, if we look further out, you know, 341 to 465, uh, you know, that takes you close to 6,000, okay? And that's probably something we'll see uh, in the 2025 uh, calendar year, more likely than the 2024. The other thing you have to keep in mind, S&P must be up just under 6% now year to date. Uh, these pre-election years have a tendency to be, you know, high single digits, low double digits. So uh, unless we're going to book the whole gain uh, in the next couple of weeks and then grind sideways for nine months, which I think is unlikely, uh, I think more likely than not, you get all these enthusiastic uh, Johnny-come-latelys bust them, retest the breakout level, and then don't look back and, and rip into the year end. And that's the beauty of having the hedge on because that'll create an extra 5% of equity capital free money that we can put in some long dated premium uh, and uh, and maybe generate an extra 10, 15 points of alpha uh, for clients, which is exciting. This is the TLT. Again, this is what's caused that re-rotation out of what we saw was that amazing broadness where everything went up into year end when the Fed pivoted. And then uh, bonds peaked, yields compressed, and now yields have been expanding for the last four or five weeks. And that's why the market looks the way it does. It does look here like it's starting to bottom on the 60 minutes. So maybe there will be some data, if not tomorrow, in coming days or weeks that leads us to get work for bonds to get a bid, um, uh, yields to compress, small caps finally break out, large caps can take a breather, and a nice rotation. The other thing that we look at that we haven't talked about in a while is option skew. So VIX measures the implied volatility of um, of insurance or at the money, and uh, skew. And I'm simplifying it here. Measures the implied volatility or the cost of cat cat, cat insurance or catastrophe insurance, i.e., moves of one standard deviation or more like big moves. And what you can see here is the demand, and this tends to be the smart money, the demand for cat insurance had been accelerating. And we did uh, explicitly tell you to ignore it last year because it was just coming out of the hole here. And that's kind of normal coming out of the hole like we saw in 2020. 2020. Um, and then we got that that pullback where 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 um, it, it's actually quite a similar pattern here. So if you look at you know the lows here, the lows in October 2022, uh, no one was buying the cat, uh, cat insurance. The smart money wasn't buying cat insurance because the house had already burned down. Right, tech was down twenty. I mean, S and P was down twenty five percent. Tech was down a lot more. 
the house had already burned down. Smart Money uh, had already cashed in their cat insurance. And then as the market rose, more people started to buy cat insurance, similar to 2020. Um, and then what you have is this kind of fake out where the market keeps going up into the fall of 2020. And then uh, everyone's got their cat insurance loaded up and all of a sudden you get this pullback. Now, this doesn't look like much because the market went straight up for two years. And I think we're going to see follow through in the market breaking out of this two year consolidation. But you did get some serious volatility. And if I recall, these were five to eight percent moves. Um, I don't even have to recall. Let me go back and just take a quick look at it. Uh, just because it looks like nothing on the long-term chart, which is why I always tell you to zoom out. So it was 340 down to 310. So yeah, I mean, that was about uh, max. It looks like nothing again, but that was about a 10% pullback and a, a little 10% pullback there after, you know, you had almost gone up 75% off the lows in 2020. And then you had these, these pullbacks. And what I'm seeing now with the skew is a very similar setup where, you know, you had this move off the lows, then this little fake out, and then you, you start to go down right before you have these little corrections. And I think in this case, it's going to be more subdued, 5 to 8%. But uh, I think sometime in the next eight weeks, we see it, if not in February, certainly in March or, or early April. Uh, and that'll be enough to scare these people that missed this whole move or this whole move, scare out all the new money, go back and retest the breakout levels, kind of like you saw here, and then uh, resume the uptrend into year end and beyond into 2025 when we start to you know, knock on the door of those uh, 6,000 plus levels on the S&P. But seeing this having peaked out like that, it doesn't guarantee a correction, but the odds start to favor it. Uh, when all of the smart bets have been placed. So I would keep that in mind. Other than that, the McClellan summation index of the S&P 500, um, this one has kind of come off the boil. And what's interesting about this, if you look at a lot of the other instances, um, this is a good analog here. You're kind of breaking out to new highs and then you just kind of roll over a little bit and check back before you make your multi-year uh, major rally. It's doing that same type of extreme check back right now, uh, similar to here in 2019, extreme check back, extreme check back. And it doesn't always work perfect, but the odds start to favor. Like this one just coming out, uh, it doesn't look like it worked, but these little moves here in 2013 were like four or 5%. And that's all kind of what we're looking for here. It doesn't mean this can't go back up and we go to 5,200, but the odds are starting to favor that. And that's why, you know, while we're fully invested, we have that hedge. Now, as it relates to Cooper Standard stock, we're going to spend a lot of time on Cooper Standard, but I did want to bring up this chart on the 60-day. You know, the problem is, is this had, had been a $5 stock for a long time. And our basis is, you know, $5.5 or whatever it is from May of 2022. And then we've added a lot more as new clients have come in in the uh, low uh, double digits and mid-teens at, at the most. Uh, and ultimately, at the end of the day, it's not going to matter as this thing works higher. But it hasn't been above $10 long enough 
to have a tremendous amount of institutional sponsorship yet. So when you get these earnings events, uh, there are no buyers. There's a lot of retail idiots on margin, um, a lot of weak, weak hands that don't understand the stock and don't understand the, the cycle. And when, you know, I've been looking at this gap and that's why I said in a few calls, you know, it, it really makes no difference if it goes to 28 or, you know, uh, I get to, or craps out and I get to buy some more at, at 12. So we were able to buy some in the 13s, which is nice. I think we could, I mean, it's hard to say whether we're going to fill this gap or not, because in theory, you filled it here, but do you fill it here in the low 13s or the high 12s? Maybe this is all nonsense, but it's just something to be aware of. So if you get a 12 handle, you know, you don't need to think the world is ending. Nothing has changed from the initial analysis or the subsequent analysis or the uh, comprehensive analysis we're going to do now. Um, dividend yield is relatively expensive versus history. Uh, this is going to change as the Fed cuts. And this is going to lead a lot of the companies like the Stanley Black and Deckers and the 3Ms and the dividend payers to uh, rip roar as the uh, uh, easing cycle uh, starts to take place. Now, what outperforms the most in the first six months following the first Fed cut? And the answer is value outperforms growth in the first six months after the first cut and small cap outperforms large cap and we believe this time will be no different and that's what we're positioning for um this is an interesting article from bloomberg timu is shopping like a billionaire with their super bowl ads what could go wrong and they're basically saying what can go wrong is exactly what goes wrong every single time which is it's like by the way you know for those of you journalists from bloomberg listening uh, I'm not trying to steal nuclear codes here. I don't need six six different ways to like log into my subscription. Um, I, I don't think the you know the fountain of youth is hidden behind your paywall. Like just let me log in without clicking on pictures of buses and palm trees and all that nonsense that takes half of my day. But leaving leaving that aside, um, so basically they draw the analogy to a famous company which was called Wish. Uh, sometime back, it was another cheap retailer selling garbage from China that no one wanted, unlike Alibaba, which sells the higher quality garbage from China that people actually do want. Um, uh, and uh, basically selling below cost to gain share. And eventually they went out of business. It was a high flyer that went to toast. And we'll see if that's the case with Timu slash PDD. Uh, Rolls-Royce shares jump 8% after 2023 profits more than double. This is interesting. That's why that segment with Charles was so important uh, as we explained what we did with Intel, which we also did with Rolls-Royce, is that fully valued is, uh, fair valued is different than fully valued. So we took off two thirds of Intel and um, Rolls-Royce, Rolls-Royce had been up three, three or three and a half X when we took off two thirds, but we let some run because these things can go much further than you think. And we wanted a free option on the nuclear and we may hold that for many years to come. And here we go there. They, they did great and uh, off to the races again. And we still have that meaningful stub uh, to participate. And the same with Intel, you'll see that thing start to fly. But the legacy businesses were fully valued. And if you look at the share count of Rolls-Royce, that was fully valued. Now we start to look at the new 
manana plan by the new CEO that he's executing beyond what we would have expected in our conservative valuation when the stock was uh, not fairly valued, not fully valued, but dramatically, ridiculously undervalued uh, based on the emotional weighing machine, uh, emotional voting machine when we purchased it and we sold it once the weighing machine, the fundamentals kicked in, et cetera. So that's why we keep a tail. I was telling uh, a new friend this morning that at any point in time, you have three choices, sell some, sell all, do nothing, okay? In the case of Vornado, we got value very, very quickly, uh, and then there becomes a time value of money uh, with a very, very quick double, uh, and we took it all off the table. And now that it's starting to get back into the low 20s, we may have another look at it again because it is a, a super high quality, and as the cutting starts, REITs are gonna pick back up, along with uh, uh, Crown Castle, uh, which is, um, our tower business, uh, et cetera. So the other thing that's got my spidey sense on is all the people that were skeptical are now upgrading their price targets, Goldman Sachs, uh, UBS. When a European bank starts being the highest target on the street, you know that you're probably in the late part of the, the, the stock market move. And now they're the highest target. I think they took it up to 5,400 today. So, you know, it just gets into a little bit of silly season. And I think we're trading at 22 times forward which I'm perfectly fine with, but um, probably just needs to take a breather before we resume the rally. Uh, this is interesting. One magnificent growth stock to buy before it soars 149%, according to Wall Street analysts. So Morgan Stanley's analyst, James Fawcett, uh, bumped his price target for PayPal up to $145. It's interesting because that's a level where we would start to lay some off. I would imagine at that level, we'd probably take two thirds off and let a third run on the house. Um, investors, okay, so he's, he said, fourth quarter week guidance, which we covered the sandbagging two weeks ago. Go back and check that out. That's an amazing uh, detailed explanation of what happened on the PayPal earnings call. And he's basically saying there's no upside priced in for the branded business, uh, we agree, and that could be monstrous, and uh, we, we don't disagree. Now, stock market commentary, volumes are the name of the game. So moving down here, and by the way, for those of you who have been with us, I know a lot are new, this is kind of a template for the election year. This is from Fundstrat, and you do start to see that weakness come in in, uh, in March and April after the early rally in election years. So we wanna just keep an eye on that. It doesn't mean it's gonna repeat itself this year, but um, that's how we're positioned. The other thing that we said in the show notes ahead of those segments is like, yeah, we could pull back to this breakout area again of 46.50, but don't get too damn cute because you're, you know, after two years of no gains consolidation, the measured move is up well over 6,000. And you could see these years where you had, you know, one and two year consolidations when they break out, they keep going. You'll get little back tests after you finally get out of the consolidation range after you break out. And that's what we think we could be up against in coming the next couple of months. Uh, but then the trend is up. So for the most part, you just hold through that volatility and uh, and use any pullbacks to, to pick up great companies at a, at a reasonable price. Uh, the other thing that we didn't get a chance to talk about was that um, while sentiment is improving among institutions, it's nowhere near extreme. And that's why we think this would be a modest pullback and dips would be bought. Now, Cooper Standard, getting back to the past, present, and future, 
In May of 2022, we built up a position in Cooper Standard at a basis of around 550. We discussed it on our podcast video cast to clients and public viewers alike. On June 7th, we broke our uh, 2022, we broke our Cooper Standard thesis publicly on Fox Business with Liz Clayman for the first time when it was trading around $6 a share. And that's my buddy Phil Flynn over there, who is an energy genius. Uh, check him out. We elaborated on the thesis at a more granular level on our video cast episode 138 on June 9th, 2022. You can listen to that. I followed up with this thesis publicly on December 28th, 2022 with Kelly O'Grady. It was up, I, I think it was up like 30%. It was in the sevens. Then again, on July 18th, 2023 on Yahoo Finance. That's after they refinanced. It shot up to the mid-teens. Uh, very important to watch this clip as it relates to expectations moving forward. It will also make the post below make more sense. And what I'm saying here is in a higher rate environment, uh, used cars are probably being financed out at 8 or 9 or 10%. New cars have the advantage of dealer OEM incentives uh, coming down and you seeing them everywhere, 0%, 2% APR. We're going to see a lot more of that. So the stock's up now 2.8x. The idea emanated from Charlie Munger's purchase of Tenneco during the 2001 to 2003 recession. As Charlie said, quote, I've read Barron's for 50 years. In 50 years, I found one investment opportunity in Barron's out of which I made about $80 million for almost no risk. I took the 80 million and gave it to Lilu, who turned it into 400 or 500 million. So I made 500 million out of reading Barron's for 50 years and following one idea. I didn't have a lot of ideas. I didn't find them that easy, but I did pounce on one. So that's Charlie at his annual meeting for the uh, Daily Journal in 2017. And this is around the time he bought Tenneco. And the similarities of the Tenneco, if you look at today's chart, take a look here. It was down from whatever, 47 down to $1.20. Uh, same type of thing. They had to refinance a billion dollars of debt. And, you know, if you look at Cooper Standard down from 146 down to five, same type of thing. They had to refinance the debt and they made these big bottoms and then they went straight up and, you know, a little consolidation along the way. And here we are straight up some consolidation and we're going to trend higher over the next couple of years, two to three years until we reach fully valued or excessively valued. Um, and we'll sell some at each level. Tenneco is a major supplier of aftermarket auto parts. It is well-known brands include Monroe shock absorbers, Walker mufflers, Dynamax, exhaust products. At the time of Charlie Munger's cigar butt investment, Tenneco, which had 40 million shares outstanding, had a market cap of 80 million and an enterprise value of 1.6. By the way, that's not far off. I think we bought Cooper when it was down to like 70 million market cap. Plus the debt, it probably had an enterprise value, 1.1 billion, if I remember correctly. Uh, and, and in Tenneco's case, it had a uh, debt load of 1.52 billion. He bought the stock at a buck 50 to $2. So, which would be the equivalent. His was down from 40 to a buck. Ours was down from 140. So that would be uh, basically, he, he bought it around five bucks. Uh, he sold it at 15, which in our case would be around 60. Uh, I think we could get a little higher on average, but you know we'll sell some before then and some after then, et cetera. The bonds went back up to par value and were called in by the company in conjunction with the refinancing. Munger turned 10 million into 80, gave 80 to Lilu. Now this is interesting. He gave 80 to Lilu to invest in China when no one wanted to invest in China in 2003 and early 2004. What is uncanny is how similar Cooper Standard today resembles 
Tenneco in 2003, 2004, and the Hang Seng Index of 2023 and 2024 resembles the Hang Seng of 2003 and 2004 as well. Uh, both were talking, both were taking off after periods of un uninvestable despondency. So take a look at the Hang Seng. You had this double bottom after a complete uh, disaster slide down. It looks like it had crashed, you know, 70 some odd percent. And, um, and that's exactly what we've had in the last couple of years. And now we're doing this double bottom here. And then it went straight up for the next four years. And what's interesting is this is not an accident. I'm not just like comparing lines and hoping for the best. There are symptoms in the global economy that create cyclical downturns for auto suppliers that are consistent with setting the stage for cyclical booms in emerging markets in China. So what caused this, you had a period of rising rates, which was detrimental for debt-laden small cap companies. As the, as the Fed started to ease after the tech wreck, uh, that's when you saw them able to get refinanced. When they got refinanced, the thing went straight up. The economy started to recover out of recession into expansion. That's when auto companies do well. Similar situation with 2020 with Cooper Standard um, out of recession, get the refinance straight up and start to recover. And what happens is as you get a little bit of easing uh, and most importantly, what was happening here was the strong dollar had started to roll over at the same time as rates compressed, they got the refinancing done, the dollar was weakening, which set the stage for the emerging market move of a lifetime, which the indices at that point went up 400, 4X, the Hang Seng went up 4X or 300% off of those 20, 2003 lows and individual companies went 5 up, 5X, 7X, et cetera. And I believe that's the similar stage that we have right now uh, where Tenneco, if you look from 2003 through 2007, after they got the refinance, and Charlie admits, by the way, he sold way too early. He sold at 15, the thing went to 35. So he would have had a 35 bagger instead of what was basically an eight bagger on the debt and equity that he bought. He would have had a 35 bagger on the equity if he held on through the full cycle. Uh, I think it's a similar situation with Cooper is going as the dollar weakens and as the Fed starts to cut, that's a favorable environment for cyclical business like auto suppliers. And you'll see this continue to persist multi-year, uh, probably another four-year cycle back into over the century mark. In, in my view, if the execution is delivered, the volumes will come industry-wide. And I think the execution, it has been delivered and will be delivered coming out of this. And the similar market conditions that favor Cooper are also very favorable for China and emerging markets. And for those who feel like this is the never ending correction from hell in China, which feels like it on a day-to-day -day basis, this happens every few years. So, uh, you know, it happened in 2015 and 16. It happened in 08 and 09. It happened in 2001 to 2003. That was probably the most comparable, by the way, because it was many, many, years, which we've just gone through and put in the double bottom. 
Um, and that lines up perfectly with what's been happening with Alibaba, which, you know, consolidates for a few years, then has these monster parabolic moves, consolidates, monster parabolic move up. And we've been consolidating for a few years. And once we get through this box, monster consolidated move up, I think first stop out, you know, we'll, we'll have resistance at 120. But I think once we get out, we're straight to 160 plus, uh, 160 to 180. And, um, and I think that's now. It's this year they start to, uh, uh, easing. The dollar will continue, resume its downtrend that it started and, uh, and, and emerging markets. And that's how the market will counterbalance and offset. So the ones that have been hot can take a breather and either consolidate sideways or just go up less. And then some of these small caps and emerging markets can just uh, pick up the reins and, and rock and roll. And that's that's why this chart is so important of value to growth, because a lot of the targets that we have in emerging markets are basically trading at value valuations. Um, same as PayPal trading at value valuation, Stanley Black & Decker, Generac, you get the whole the dividend stocks, et cetera, and, uh, and small caps. So all of that is in place and we're excited. So now the moral of the story is Munger was able to turn 10 million into a half a billion, which is two chess moves. Here's some information from our original thesis. So, um, you know, they do fluid handling systems and sealing systems around the doors and windows. The key point here is for those of you who are saying, well, what happens when they move into hybrids and EVs? They actually make more money per car with hybrids because there's 28 parts versus in ICs, there's only eight parts. So they're getting more and more content per car than they did even at their $146 a share peak in 2017. And the industry volumes will recover. So uh, what I have here is what they did at their peak when the stock traded at $146, they were doing 3.61 billion in revenues with about a 12.5% EBITDA margin of, of four, 56 and the most important table is the one above with the IHS estimates of global light vehicle production. Key takeaway is volumes are expected to return to 2017 levels by 2024 or 2025. Now they just put out very conservative estimates industry-wide and I think they're caught, you know, in 2017 they were coming off a seven-year ramp so their estimates were very, very high and everyone was happy. Now they're coming off recency bias and they're stuck and as a matter of fact, last year, their estimates were 4 million units too low. And we're going to go into that in detail. But here's, here's what we um, basically want to lay out here. What they were able to do in 2017 is $3.6 billion in revenue, 452 in adjusted EBITDA, which is 12.5% of revenues, which translated to $135 million of net income, 3.73% of revenues, and at that time, they had a lot more shares, 18.78 million fully diluted shares. They earned $7.21 a share on that. Um, and on that peak earnings of 721, the multiple was 20 times and they had a $146 stock. Uh, here's what Cooper could achieve in 2024, more likely 2025, as the volumes rise. We think, you know, they sold off their vibration business I think uh, 3.3 billion of revenues, and, and that's not a, a huge stretch considering guidance for next year is uh, 2.8 to 2.9. So 
like last year, they'll probably exceed that. So, you know, if, if the volumes tick up a little bit, I think they could do two nine and a half to three this year, which sets them up for 2025 uh, coming in at 3.3 or in that neighborhood, which would uh, yield about 412 million in adjusted EBITDA, which is 12.5% of revenues. Now keep in mind, they took like 400 million of costs out of the business. So their margins might actually get better once they get over that inflection point where their fixed costs have been met and then you get all the operating leverage above that, we may see higher margins than expected like we saw this year, uh, but much more as you get over that inflection, which would be 123 million in net income, 3.73% of revenues on 17.16. I think they issued some shares, performance-based shares. So even if you call it 17.5 million shares, or even if it gets back up to 18 worst case scenario, you're still around seven bucks a share. Uh, and not even putting the peak multiple on, which would take us back to 140, uh, if you put a trough multiple of 10 times when they're earning money, that's a $70 stock. So there's still huge amounts of upsides. Um, and like I said, they've taken out meaningful costs so the margins may be higher as we inflect. So what's new? Here's the earnings call results, get, got, like PayPal, the results were good on all metrics, but the guidance was conservative. And they said as much in the conference call. So let's look at some of this. Sales were up 3.7% on the quarter. Uh, now, keep in mind, they were shut down for four or five weeks on uh, the UAW strikes. And they actually quantified that. I think it was either, I think it was 31 million or something like that, which would have blown the doors off of expectations. Instead, they just uh, beat expectations. Uh, gross profit up 19% year on year, uh, adjusted EBITDA was 27.6 for the quarter net cash provided by operating activities was $79.7 million, uh, which improved by 105 million because last year in the fourth quarter, they were negative for the full year. Revenues were up around 12% gross profit was up 124% adjusted EBITDA, uh, which by the way, look at this, it's at 5.9% of sales. Remember, we're gonna get up to 12.5 once the operating leverage kicks in. So it uh, was 167 million, which um, you know is, is nearing halfway too. Now, by the way, this increased $129 million year on year and net cash provided by operating activities was uh, 117 million of operating cash flow, uh, and that improved by 153 million year on year because it was negative the fourth quarter of 2023. So this is the big turnaround year. They were free cash flow positive for the first time, 62 million of free cash flow. A lot of it was made in the most recent quarter, which was also exciting to see. And these, this is where this is the period where the stock has been largely de-risked and you make the most money in the shortest period of time over the next 24 to 36 months. Um, you know, we get the extra three turns because we were taking risk when it looked darkest. Why? Because we felt that if they couldn't get it refinanced on their own, we could have made some connections for private credit to get it done or be helpful in making introductions to get it refinanced. That's why we were willing to take that risk. Uh, but fortunately they did it all on their on their own. 
with uh, Goldman Sachs' uh, $80 million of advisory fees, but they did get it done in the worst possible environment in the last 10 years to get it done, which was Q4 of 2022. And the window for them to refinance some of that opens in Q1 of 2025. Uh, even though none of it comes due till 2027, they could refinance at a lower rate in less than a year, which is pretty exciting because rates will likely be lower as will their presentation in terms of free cash flow and the terms that they'll be able to get. And they'll just be able to keep refinancing lower and lower and lower and lowering that um, interest cost. Now, what's interesting about, oh, all right. So let's, there were two big lumpy expenses in Q4 that were one off. So when people look at the guidance for EBITDA, which was what it was like 160 to 182, and they came in at one. They came in at uh, 167. So they had raised guidance from Q3 to Q4. Then you had the shutdown, but the most important thing is you had a $16 million expense for the pension because they shut down some of the defined benefit and they had like 40 million of quote other. Much of that, I think in the neighborhood, if I'm uh, guessing here around 20 million was one-time performance-based comp because they exceeded a lot of performance metrics that uh, you know wasn't clear that they were going to exceed in 2023. So there was like a 20, 20 some odd million, call it half of other booked. And you could actually see it, the 20 million bump in SG&A on a, on a year on year basis. But they got that because they got paid. So that's not a normalized, neither the 16 nor the 20 are normalized. So if you add that to 167, call it 36, um, or let's just say, you know, let's say you only, you say, well, they closed the pension, so they had to pay that. So only give credit for half. So let's call it 30 million. The top end of their EBITDA range was like 180. So if you add 30 to 167 on a normalized basis, they crushed the raised EBITDA guidance. And no one's seeing that. They're just saying, oh, why did they come in lower? Oh, maybe it was because of the strike. It was not only the strike impact, it was these huge one-time charges that impacted it in the short term and they still beat the top line revenues with weeks of shutdown and you say well if the strike hurt them why didn't it hurt the oems because they blew the doors off when they reported earnings and the answer is it's because the oems gm ford stellantis etc they book sales cooper standard books units produced so the OEMs had inventories they could sell and book. Cooper only gets what they get to produce. And if their factories, if the OEM factories are shut down, they don't produce. So that, that, that was another factor and they quantified it in the call, which we'll get into. Now, let's go through some of these. Uh, we went through cash flow, free cash flow, blah, blah, blah. All that was great. Uh, liquidity, great. Um, Okay, now 
We can see by region the sales. We can see negative impact of work stoppages initiated by certain labor unions in North America in 2023. So they acknowledge that. Now, why was why is the stock down? First and foremost, we don't have enough institutional sponsorship yet. The longer it stays above $10, the more those folks will come in, the more execution you get. Uh, we're gonna see a lot more uh, institutional sponsorship come in. You've already seen Vanguard come back in, BlackRock come back in, et cetera. You're gonna see more of that. But they cannot take up guidance without industry volumes going up. So if the industry volumes, the IHS volumes are saying volumes are gonna be flat, um, and yet the company is still taking guidance up, which is what they've said in recent calls, is like they said, we expect industry volumes to, to grow at you know um, X percent per year, uh, but we're gonna grow like 500 basis points more than that. Why? Because number one, they're gaining share, they're increasing margin, and they've become a, uh, technologically advanced company, meaning they're no longer a me too provider. The technology that they provide to their clients is unique and special and helps their clients save costs and increase profitability. And as a, in exchange for that, uh, Cooper Standard gets more money for making their clients more money. I mean, they're basically set up the way I'm set up as an asset manager. I don't get paid anything until my clients get paid first. I don't charge a management fee. I only get a performance fee. And that's a similar setup with these contracts that have improved so much for Cooper Standard, it's not because uh, the kindness of the heart of the OEMs, it's because the net to the OEMs, even paying Cooper Standard more is less than before because Cooper has enabled them to spend less net, spend less net money and get a better product and higher profits, even paying Cooper Standard more. So that's evidence of their engineering technology and execution. Um, okay, so even with flat industry volume guidance, they're expecting EBITDA range to go well up, which means that 180 to 210, which means they're gonna probably do uh, 200 if, all, if volumes are flat. But last year, IHS, which we're going to go into, underestimated car volumes by 4 million units. So if that's the case again this year, that can mean this number is 10% higher on the top line. Because if you look, if it comes in at, um, what do we have here? Well, we'll get to that as we as we go through. Uh, but you can see, just to give you an idea of how conservative management is being in the industry, estimates of volumes are, let's look at what they promised last year at this exact time. Conservative guidance last year as well, the company had been too conservative because industry estimates were too conservative just like this year. Even with an unexpected strike, they still crushed conservative guidance. So they were promising uh, 2.6 to 2.8 billion, they hit 2.82. So just on that, and that's with a strike. So just on that basis, we'd probably be hitting three billion this year. Um, uh, they promised 150 to 175 million of EBITDA. They hit 167 again. That's with those, I'm gonna call it $35 million of one-time costs. So they'd be at 200 this year, uh, which would imply next year probably at 
230, 240, uh, which means they're gonna their margins are gonna start to go up dramatically and their free cash flow is gonna go up. Um, so their sales were 102 million better than expected. There that than the midpoint of the range. The their adjusted EBITDA was 4.6 million better than the middle of the range. Their cash restructuring costs were 23.6 million less than they guided than the mid range. Uh, their net cash taxes were almost five million less than the middle of the range that they expected, and the uh, car production numbers came in 500,000 more than estimated in North America, 1.3 more million more than estimated in Europe, 2.3 million more than estimated in Greater China, and 100,000 less than estimated in South America. The industry unit assumptions exceeded by four million units last year, okay? Now, you can see they pulled the exact same under promise over deliver at this time last year. The stock did not like the conservative guidance, but recovered to new highs as the year wore on. Here's where they gave that conservative guidance, February of 2023. Stock sold off on that. Now, here's what's important. The stock was trading abnormally high in January of 2023 relative to 2022 and 2023 expected fundamentals, and they just refinanced their debt out to 2027 and taken solvency risk off the table in what was a very treacherous closed credit market in Q4 of 2022. The conservative guidance was an excuse for the stock to settle down. This year, we have not run up into the conservative guide. We have simply been grinding sideways, passing time for the next new catalyst, which are higher industry volumes and implementation of higher margin negotiated contracts to arrive, which by the way, I haven't spent enough time on because most of the, that higher margin is going to kick in the back half of 2024, which is not clearly embedded in the EBITDA estimates. Okay, so on that basis, so two things. Number one, you're not coming off of this into the weak guidance. Uh, we've basically been pricing pricing that in. So I don't think we're going to have this, you know, two months of going down before we start to recover to new highs. I think it'll be sooner than that. Um, but, you know, we may fill that gap in the 12s, which would be nice. I'd love to get newer clients uh, a bigger stake. Um, but not only did management dramatically exceed expectations despite the strike, but you can also see that the IHS estimates are 4 million units. On that basis, we could see close to 70 million units in 2024, up from 65.2 million units. And what's interesting about that is 4 million units, they make about $175 a car. Um, and that would be at the you know, that's uh, 680 million of revenues up in the air. So if you assume they're supplying obviously to the big three, let's just say they got a third of that excess unit volume and the margins are going to be much higher because now their free cash flow positive, their fixed costs are covered. You know, that could be a surprise $100 million of EBITDA that's not in guidance. And then if we start to get up to the top high 200s of adjusted EBITDA, high 300s, now we're knocking on the door one more year to hit 400, which is seven, eight bucks a share. And then, uh, th and then it goes multiple and then we're at a century and the stock is ripping. So, um, 
a lot of exciting stuff happening. Here are some of the bridges on their conservative guidance, ample liquidity, 317 million worth. Plus they're gonna be refinancing in Q1 of 2025, free cash flow positive inflection. This is everything you wanna see in a turnaround. This is the stock-based comp. It was you know up uh, just on the stock. They had to record another 4 million of uh, cost, 16 million on shutting down that, that part of the pension. Uh, you can see here the selling general and administrative up 20, uh, 15 million. So a lot of these were performance-based bonuses, pension, one-off type things. And then the conference call. So sales up 20, uh, 12%, 56 million in, more in cost savings, 500 basis points improvement in gross margin. That's going to hockey stick next year now that they're free cash flow positive. All four segments were profitable at an EBITDA level for the full year. That is the first time they've done that, by the way. Um, all right, uh, let's just go through some of these. Uh, so their adjusted EBITDA was 4.1% of sales. Remember, that's gonna go up to 12.5 over the next two years, at least in our view, uh, despite the impacts of the strike and the pension settlements. For the full year, sales were 2.8. We probably only need to get to 3.8 or 3.6 to earn $7 a share uh, with, the, with the amount of costs that they've, they've run out. Uh, favorable volume mix, new enhanced commercial agreements, etc. cetera. Uh, EBITDA was 167 compared to 37.9 for the full year. It is actually 190 if you actually back out the one-time cost from Q4. Um, Price adjustments and inflation recoveries. Okay. Here it is. They quantified the strike. They say approximately 31 million in lost sales related to the UAW strike. So that explains the fourth quarter, which was basically well above their raised EBITDA guidance when you add back all this stuff and significantly above. I think if you add all these things back, you're over $200 million of EBITDA last year, which is just adjusted EBITDA, which is mind boggling, okay? Um, yeah, they, they acknowledge the compensation, 40 million and other, including higher performance-based compensation year over year. UAW, uh, EBITDA impact of the UAW strike was 11 million. So 167 plus 11 puts you at 177, uh, and then you add the comp in, you're at 200. So basically they did 200 million of adjusted EBITDA. The market's pretending they did 150 million. I mean, it's it's mind boggling. But uh, that's just because of the, the composition of shareholders at the moment. That's gonna change very, very quickly now that they're cash flow positive. Um, you can go through this, but you know they're showing how they're no longer a me too. That's the stuff they're delivering to the OEMs at higher prices makes the OEMs more money if they buy commodity stuff at lower prices. And that's what gives them a moat in their business and in their industry. Uh, and then the Fortrex Nike deal, which they get, basically they've got no investment. Nike puts this material in their shoes, which is better for them. And for every shoe they sell, they pay them uh, cash. And the more shoes they sell, the more cash they get. And that can just scale globally and be a great new source of income in the coming years that we have modeled in absolutely zero, which could be a lot more than anyone thinks. Uh, to grow to pace. 
Upside opportunity for Cooper Standard. Okay, this is very important. So what Jeff is trying to say is like, hey, you know, basically we can't give you big guidance because the industry is saying volumes are going to be flat. So how are we going to come out and say we're going to be up 20% when the volumes are flat and we get paid per car? Um, even though we've renegotiated our contracts and cut costs and all that stuff. Uh, what he's trying to say is he believes these volumes are too low. And he pointed to something, you know, I've talked about demographics, which points to the most favorable car demographics since the halcyon days in the 90s. Because when people move out to the suburbs, they get another car, largest population, 34, prime spending years, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But he noted something that I had not thought of before, which is record numbers of new licensed drivers, record high average age of the vehicle fleet in the U.S., light vehicle, in, uh, which I've, I've pointed out many times, light vehicle inventories that despite recent improvements remain well below historic averages, so they've got dealer inventories, all suggest consumer demand for new cars will remain strong and production will have to increase to keep up with these supportive dynamics. I'm increasingly confident that we can and will achieve our longer term targets of profit margins and return on invested capital, which, which he said repeatedly, double digits within two years, double digits plus. Um, but I looked up, I pulled up the, I pulled up the numbers independently. And what's interesting is our setup is exactly like it was going into 2017. What do I mean by that? It means you had four or five years of flat new licensed drivers in the U.S. 2009, 2010, 2011, 2012, 2013, and basically 14. And then it started galloping by, you know, first it went up one, then it went up one million, then it went up two million from 2013 to 2014, then it went up four million from 2014 to 15, then it went up another uh, almost four million from 2015 to 16, and then another two million from 2017. So you had basically four to five years of flat growth coming out of the recession, and then it just galloped. And, and basically in three years, it went up 10 million. Now, what did we have in 2020? The same exact thing. We've basically been stuck around this two, it was 228 to two, it was 228 before the pandemic, 228 again, the pandemic, 232, 233. And we just had our first big jump of 3 million, 233 to 236. It looks like it's projected we're going to jump another 3 million in 2014 and then another 3 million. So again, what? We're going to jump 10 million in about three or four years, exactly what happened from 2015, uh, 2014 to 2017 when you had this 10 million jump. And here's what happened to the stock at that time uh, when you had the 10 million jump in new licensed drivers, the stock jumped from, oh boy, this is a long article, um, $32 to $146. And I think we're on the precipice of that happening again. So. You can chase NVIDIA, maybe it'll double again. I'll take this bad boy and get a multi, multi, multi bagger with some patience and with a, a lot more assurity because I'm not paying 40 or 60 times sales. I'm paying uh, a fraction of sales at the moment. Obviously the margins are different, et cetera. 
but um, this is more bankable than gambling on the future. Now, I'm all for AI, I'm all for that stuff, and we have our different ways to play that, whether through Amazon, through Alphabet, et cetera, et cetera, through Intel. But um, these cyclical turns, that's, you know, you don't get two chess moves from 10 million to 500 million, 10 million to a half a billion in a handful of years in auto parts supplier and China um, with kind of unpredictable bets. These are as predictable as it gets based on the normal cycle. And that's why we're in them. So uh, let me just cover a couple other things that he went into that are important and then we'll move on. Uh, clearly our light vehicle production units and the guidance that we've used for 2024. So you can see there are continue to be a bit conservative, I guess is how I would describe it. I mean, he can't lay this out any clearer. Um, but the good news is we truly have reduced our overall cost base, especially our fixed cost, and we are prepared to make significant margin improvements even on those lower volume. So based on my prepared remarks, you can tell I'm sure that the industry is, we believe there's significant pent up demand. We believe that many of the other metrics are regarding our consumers and their appetite and interest in buying vehicles going forward continues to be positive. So at some point we expect volumes to begin to reflect that. But in the meantime, we've chosen to be a, a bit conservative there ourselves. So he's basically saying like, again, I can't give you strong guidance without strong industry volumes, but the industry has been wrong by 4 million units last year, which could be 100 to 150 million to our bottom line that we're not guiding on, um, which is staggering because in a best case scenario, you could see 300 million adjusted EBITDA and like absolutely blow the doors off, which I don't think is outside the realm of possibility. It's it's not the base case, but um, some good things can happen. So anyway, this is all opinion, not advice. Go to hedgefundtips.com and see terms. Past performance is no guarantee of future results, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You know, I also find it interesting. Yeah, I, I was doing some segment and they're like, do you own the stock? And I was like, of course I own the stock. Would you ever have someone on this TV talking about a stock that they didn't have confidence to risk their own money? Like, why would you ever listen to someone talk about a stock when they didn't have skin in the game and weren't set to lose or gain with you if they're talking about the benefits of a stock? I've never understood that. Like why they would ever let someone on TV talk about a stock that they didn't own personally and wouldn't lose money if if uh, if they were wrong. I mean, is it's mind boggling, but you know, take advice from people with no skin in the game is, is uh, I guess people do it, but um, that, that's the first thing I ever ask anyone with any investment is how much skin do you have in the game if they're asking me to be an investor? And that's, that's the whole key, you know? So anyway, every one of our regions has made a positive EBITDA cash flow contribution to the company. So I think that shows the focus we've had on either exiting because we have, or fixing because we certainly have kept them there. The Nike deal, uh, this is very simple, guys. I, I already explained that. They just, they've licensed the chemistry and they make unlimited money as, as uh, Nike uses it and sells it around the world. Right now, I think it's in two sneakers and that could be a source of revenue that's not in our model. You know, we could wind up having a, a buck or two bucks per share in earnings that we don't even think is coming, which is exciting. Um, now, this is also interesting here. 
big lumps comes this year, and you've been saying this for a while now that we see the benefits of the restructuring action starting to unfold in 2024. We're starting to see that. Um, and he's also implying here you're going to start, you're at the starting point, still having the benefit of those arrangements starting to show up. And he's basically saying, listen, it's very clear what's going to happen. It would be nice to get some more volumes. I'll just leave it at that. Whenever they say, I'll just leave it at that is like, it's code for like, how clear do I have to be for you to read between the lines between what I'm saying and what I can say and what you need to interpret? I mean, they can't be any clearer in what they're saying. The other thing that they have to be careful about, and you guys have to uh, be mindful, despite the fact that the OEMs are making more net money by paying them more because the technology has gotten better for them. The last thing an auto parts supplier wants to do is brag about how high their margins are when they're negotiating contracts. And that's something that you have to keep in the back of their head. Now, at the same time, what they're providing is indispensable. They're not a me too provider. So when you, you know, no one, here, here's the way life works. No one cares how much they pay you as long as what they get net is way more than they could get on their own. <laughs> that, that's, the, that's really the secret of life. If you can find solutions for people and deliver value net of your cost, that's way greater than, than the value they could deliver elsewhere, you have a durable, sustainable, moated, amazing business, win-win, providing great value. And that's why you wind up with customers for a lifetime. Um, and that's what we try to do here. And that's what Cooper Standard is doing with these OEMs. But they're not going to, you know, brag and say, wow, look how much money we're making. Uh, what they, because what they're focused on is how much money are we making our clients uh, net of our costs? And we're improving our clients in a, in a way that competition cannot, and therefore they're going to be our clients for life. And that's what they're focused on versus, you know, bragging about how, how high the margins are and um, uh, creating a, an uncomfortable situation when they have to negotiate their uh, adjustments every single year on contracts. So you have to just keep that in mind if they're conservative and humble. How is that played out in past years when they're conservative and humble? And the answer is they've dramatically exceeded what they said they were going to do. Um, okay, next, uh, positive free cash flow. If you own this company, you should read this entire article uh, because there's so much here. But if I went I mean, it took me like six hours. So like if I went into it, it would take me another six hours, but there's so much here. I'd, I don't want to skip over what's important. Cash flow generation and continuous improvements. Uh, take care later. Uh, we've elected to... Oh, this is interesting. The cash flow generation and our continuous improvement activities to further right-size the business, optimize our financial strength here going forward is going to be adequate from a debt service standpoint. You'll see actually today when we file our 10K later on, we've elected a straight pay on the third lien notes for the June coupon period. So we're confident that cash flows will continue to be strong and we're able to make that decision six months in advance. The <laughs> so they have the option to pick the interest, meaning paying kind and just add it to the back end of the loan. 
Instead, six months early, they're saying, no, we're going to be able to pay that for, for cash. The other thing you have to keep in mind, if you didn't notice, they issued a ton of stock, performance-based stock, to operators who have been through hell and back over the last three years after this earnings call. And it's probably no accident the, the guidance was conservative and the stock was down because they were able to issue it at $14 versus $20. Uh, and I'm not saying that was that was necessarily done on purpose, uh, but what I'm saying is that if you want to retain people who have a ton of options at 60 and 70 and 80 dollars a share, who have helped you, you know, been through hell and back with you over the last three years, largely to no fault of their own, it was you know an industry shutdown with COVID. Um, uh, a good way to do that is give them a decent amount of stock at 14 dollars, and that's exactly what they did. So. Uh, a lot of these guys that have stuck through and helped them turn the company around are going to become excessively wealthy over the next few years, uh, even with a modest stake of, uh, you know, 100,000 shares. I mean, these guys can make, uh, you know, 10, 15 million bucks and, uh, and you know, be life changing. So, so that's that. Um, but to your point, the first and third lien non-call provisions come off in Q1 of next year. So there could be opportunities there if the interest rate environment is positive. We continue to execute and have successive cash flow generation patterns out in front of us. Uh, business continues to execute and grow profitably. Again, he alludes to volume. Uh, and then double digit margins, he said, will be there in two years. Uh, he then reemphasizes volume. So he's basically saying the volumes are BS. We're going to knock it out of the park, but apparently you're not hearing me. So I'm going to repeat it one more time without actually saying it because uh, I don't want my competition to explicitly uh, flag it. But how many different ways can I tell you this, you dumb sell side analyst? Uh, this is what's going to happen. <laughs> so, um, so you can see the back and forth. And then some of the, the uh, data sales by, you can see their cap table, you can see their sales by regions, you can see their free cash flow. So we put all this stuff in from the 10K. Uh, sentiment again, a little bit elevated, could get a little more elevated before we get a breather uh, for the general market, but that's that. Uh, defense and aerospace earnings uh, estimates down 3.46%. So I see stuff like this, top 30 weights, earnings down. Uh, and, you know, I say, you know, energy, uh, top 30 weights, earnings down 8%. So, you know, you see some of this stuff and you say, you know, a handful of stocks here in the last few weeks since the uh, rates blew out a little bit. Um, it's kind of fumes short term. And as I said to Aaron, maybe the max pain is just grinding sideways. But I think there's a we're getting closer to an asymmetry to a short-term pull pullback. And that's that's why we've gone through everything that we've gone through in the last week and a half. Uh, earnings are still growing and that's why we're constructive and that's why we are fully invested. Um, some of the data here, the jobs data was interesting today. Continuing claims were a uh, little lower than expected. Initial claims were 201,000, but again, lower than expected. So that's hot. Let's see. No, I don't think we have core PCE tomorrow. That's rig count. So maybe that's next week. Um, all right. Now, the podcast is over. We're going to continue for those people who wanted me to answer Ask Me Anything questions, which we do every week. Thanks for tuning in. And here we go. Aaron asks, 
Thoughts on JD? Um, JD is super cheap. I think you're going to make money if you buy JD. Uh, but I just want to buy the best in class when it comes to China because I'd rather a little more security than uh, I've got enough country and company risk. I mean, JD's cash flow is growing. Their revenue is growing. It's decelerating, but um, I think that stock will probably be fine. Uh, Richard Claremont found an impressive company hidden in Alibaba's 13F. It's one of the non-core assets Alibaba owns a slug of called Momo. Um, I'm sure it's fine, but I wouldn't own it. So the cash flow is starting to reaccelerate. Uh, revenues are decelerating and haven't picked up. So that's worrisome. Uh, let's see here what they do. Uh, just looking at those revenues, though, I'm going to say pass because it was probably a COVID type business, mobile based social and entertainment services. Uh, da, 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 short videos, social. This is the stuff the government doesn't love. Uh, it might work. It would be a trade. I'm not interested. Frederick Hammerstrom from Sweden. All right. Thanks for all you do. Uh, thanks for listening. Small investment, okay. <laughs> this is funny. Uh, how do you evaluate whether there's a risk of bankruptcy? It's you got to assess free cash flow and the ability to service the interest payments. Um, and uh, Nobi is a Nordic housing market, has dropped 80%, resulted in negative cash flows and high leverage. So that probably answers your question. Uh, I wouldn't play there. You don't really want to play on the edge unless you can control the outcome like we could with, we felt we would be able to worst case scenario with um, Cooper Standard. So I'll just take a quick look at this. Revenues have been pretty flat for 10 years. EBITDA started collapsing. Oh, no, it didn't start collapsing beforehand, but it was decelerating before the pandemic. What's the free cash flow look like? Yeah, I mean, this thing, uh, net debt is going up, free cash flow is going down, revenue is going down. I mean, you're basically playing against the clock. Um, you know, you'd have to really do a lot of diligence on the company and on industry trends and supply and demand and rates and all those things to see how quickly that could turn, how quickly they expect to get free cash flow positive to be able to service the debt. When does the debt come due? What does the cap structure looks like? What will they be paying when they refinance it, if they can refinance it? So I think you're in a hairball there. I'd, I'd put that in the too hard box and go for something easier. But thank you for sharing with your friends and uh, congratulations on your small investment circle.
called Baba and Beers in My Honor. I'm very grateful for that. Maybe one day I'll be in Sweden and I will uh, will come celebrate Baba with some beers uh, a year or two out, which would be exciting. Can you recommend any energy-related books to learn more about the sector? Sam, I think the key thing is, the number one thing you can do to educate yourself on a sector is read tons of annual reports on tons of different companies. Uh, I also like to go to kind of the genesis of a sector. So like, obviously I liked uh, uh, the book Titan about John Rockefeller. I like the book um, Wildcatters, a story of Texans, oil and money. Um, Monty Moncrief, Texas oil billionaire. I like to, to see what they went through. Uh, obviously learned the story quite a bit of Jerry Jones uh, before we got in Comstock, which is now, you know, at point of maximum despondency starting to turn now, as we anticipated with the seasonality of natural gas, probably have one more flush out and then we can start to, to, to move. And we've used these opportunities of softness to add more. Um, so I hope that's helpful, Sam. Rohan Joshi, uh, Tom, thanks for sharing your knowledge. Have you looked at Goodyear Tire? Similar to VF Corp, they have a new CFO in place, a CEO, would appreciate your thoughts. Uh, I don't like, I've looked at the car companies many times over the year, uh, the um, uh, tire companies, it's too competitive because of all the Koreans. I don't like it. Uh, and, and the Japanese and the Chinese selling tires, that, that game changed. It does look like they're inflecting here to cash flow positive and you maybe do it for a trade, but it's a uh, low return on capital, low quality business and uh, never seems to get out of its way. But that doesn't mean it won't double in the next year. So have at it if you're comfortable with the balance sheet and free cash flow. Jason Zen, uh, Cooper Standard questions. We covered everything you need to know about Cooper Standard. Thanks for the question. Uh, trying to get heavier into energy and grid infrastructure. I know you have some energy plays like Comstock and also like CCI, CCI's towers. Any other ones you're looking at that will benefit from the 300 to 500 billion being spent by the government over the next five to seven years? How about literal picks and shovels in Stanley Black & Decker that sells all the tools to all the infrastructure that's gonna be done over the next three to five years from the Inflation Reduction Act? Craftsman, DeWalt, uh, Stanley, you name it. They make the tools, they're gonna to benefit. Generac is gonna be backing up all of those sites. Um, that's going to be a big boon. Um, uh, what else do we have? 3M is going to be a beneficiary of that. Uh, you know, all the all the names we've covered. We're we're positioned for that. Uh, Mark Hill, great show. Love the insight you provide. Could you comment on Merck? PE appears difficult to sustain. Yeah, this thing's had a nice run. Um, I mean, it's hitting on, I mean, would I ever buy this with new money right here? Absolutely not. If I owned it, would I be a seller of it? 
what are they paying you to wait? You got a 2.4% dividend yield on your basis. It's probably 5%, I would guess. Uh, what's the earnings look like? Earnings are coming down a little bit. But it's trading at, what, 13 times? I don't think you get hurt with Merck. I wouldn't be a buyer here, but I, again, I think long-term you're fine. I think short-term it's probably gotten ahead of itself. And um, yeah, I mean, revenues are starting to accelerate. There must be an acquisition in there. So, Thirteen times it's historically traded around fourteen, so it's you know it's at the hop top end of its range. But again, if you're holding it long term, you're okay. It it might pull back in the short term. If you're just getting in, I think it's a, it's ahead of itself. JT, another question on CPS. We've answered that. So um, with that said, I'm going to thank everyone for joining. We'll be back next week, same time, same place. In the meantime, make it a great one. Bye for now.